Hello and welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about what I am calling the push for purity inside the Massachusetts Democratic Party. The immediate catalyst for this conversation came a couple of weeks ago when Dan Wolf, the former state senator and one-time candidate for governor, raised some eyebrows at a Democratic forum in Somerville. He described House Speaker Bob DeLeo as tone-deaf to the issues that matter most to Democratic Party activists. Wolf also said that if DeLeo doesn't change his M.O., it might be time for him to get a primary challenge. Never mind that DeLeo is probably the most powerful Democrat in Massachusetts today. Now, I could be wrong about this, but I'm guessing that one of our guests nodded in agreement when he heard about Wolf's comments. That guest is State Senator Jamie Eldridge, who made a similar argument himself way back in August 2016 when he said too many conservative Democrats cruise to re-election and that it's time for Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives generally to take control of the state party. Senator Eldridge, thank you for being here. Adam, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Our other guest has a somewhat different take. Peter Ubertasio is a political scientist and right now the director of the Joseph Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. After those comments from Dan Wolf caused a stir, Ubertasio wrote a piece for WGBHnews.org titled Progressives Demonize Speaker DeLeo at Their Own Peril. That quote gives you a sense of Ubertasio's argument, but for me, this was the money quote in his piece. Claiming that an element of the activist base is the Democratic Party is historically wrong, not to mention politically untenable. Peter Ubertasio, thank you for coming into the BPL studio uh, here in Copley Square to chat. Sure, thanks for having me. And by the way, you've got a new gig, I should say, I right? I do, I do. What's your new title going to be? I will uh, soon be the dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College. Congratulations. Thank you. It's terrific. Finally, I am joined yet again by my esteemed colleague, Peter Kadzis, who's a senior editor at WGBH News and a font of wisdom when it comes <laughs> to Massachusetts politics. Peter, howdy. Now, was that, man, did I detect a, a note of irony in that description? <laughs> no, I'm trying, what's the phrase, manage up or... or uh, <laughs> anyway, great yes. to be here. So, Jamie, and I'm going to call you Jamie rather yeah, than Senator do. Eldridge for yep, the purposes do. of this conversation. Yes. Am I right that you nodded vigorously when you either learned what Dan Wolf had said in Somerville a couple weeks ago or what he was going to say? I, I did not. I did not nod vigorously because I, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, my, my, my comments in an email from last year was, was really making the point across the state that if Democrats who are energized for whatever variety of reasons are, you know, unhappy with their legislator or they're pushing certain issues, we're in a democracy and, and people should consider running. So, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, I didn't call for anyone to be challenge. It was a general discussion with progressives and pretty much Bernie Sanders supporters. Did you think, given that, that, that your comments at the time were blown out of proportion? I was just rereading a piece that The Globe and Jim O'Sullivan did at the time. I remember thinking it was a big deal, but I, I didn't talk to you face-to-face about it. I just heard about it in the media. So did, did we um, <laughs> exaggerate the bracingness of what you had to say a little less than a year ago? I thought it was exaggerated a little. I was surprised it was turned into a Globe story. I, I will say the part that I was most surprised at is that the chair of the Democratic Party at the time um, fairly directly, you know, criticizing me and saying, well, wait a second, you know, if, if we're 
a big tent you know, party, and I don't know exactly if we are, but if we are, then shouldn't anyone, any Democrat, be able to run for office? And so why this criticism against the notion that people should run for office if they have an issue or if they're unhappy with their representation? All right, before I give Peter a chance to get in here, one more question for you, Jamie. Is there an ongoing debate right now on Beacon Hill and among the party faithful across the state over what it means to be a Democrat and what core beliefs people maybe should not get away with having if they are going to embrace that party affiliation? Well, here's where I, I agree a bit with what, what Peter said and wrote in his, his column is that you know, no one, no one as a Democrat has, has the right to say someone is not a Democrat. But I do think there's different kinds of Democrats, and it's natural that there are different, you know, factions and advocacy on, on policies, on positions. So I think that's natural, and I think that's good for a party. And, and, and I, I don't think it's good to say this person is not a Democrat. Certainly there are people who say, well, that person is not a progressive or that person is a conservative or a moderate. But, I mean, uh, people, if they're registered as a Democrat, they are a Democrat. So, Peter Ubertasio, I had hoped that we were going to be on the verge of fisticuffs with you and Senator Eldridge. I don't think that's Not going really to happen our style. based on the first... Right, it's true. Based on the first couple minutes. But uh, run through, in your own words, I gave a little preview of the piece sure. that you wrote, which I think Peter edited for WGBHnews.org. I but missed a typo. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> okay, thank you, Peter. As did I as a reader, by the way. So uh, what gave you pause when you heard about what Dan Wolf had to say about House Speaker Bob DeLeo. Sure. Uh, I, I think what gave me pause a little bit is really just the idea that uh, you can speak in the American system, that you can speak for an entire political party. Um, it worries me a bit, not so much uh, here, but when I see what's happening in Washington, particularly with the Republican Party, where they have really tried to take a parliamentary model and say there's only one way to be a Republican, and uh, they've gone way off on the deep end to their most conservative elements, saying, unless you agree with us on all of this, we're not going to bring things to the floor, we're not going to move legislation. Uh, that doesn't work in the American context. It's historically wrong. Political parties are, uh, in the United States, diffuse. They're decentralized. Uh, as the senator pointed out, there are, there are multiple pathways to being a Democrat here or nationally. Uh, and so when an element of the party, and I, and I also want to say, I know that Senator, uh, former Senator Wolf was speaking off the cuff at an event. So That's uh, a good point. Yeah, I want to be careful not that. to suggest that this is, that he's on this, this mission to un, unseat the, the speaker. Um, but certainly other voices you hear. It's like this is what it means to be a Democrat. Someone uh, responded uh, on uh, social media by saying, if you, don't, uh, if you don't agree with the platform, you need to get out of the party. It's a little more colorful than that. Uh, that I think is 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 dangerous for um, uh, American political parties. You know, you can you can share the colorful comments unless you're uncomfortable saying them out loud here in the Boston <laughs> Public Library because we can bleep this out. This is this is web audio. Did were expletives involved or? Of, oh sure, well, people use all sorts of expletives on online, um, and and that leads you to this notion of uh, well, who 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 sits in judgment of of this? You know, who who. Uh, staffs the purity committee for either of the political parties to determine who is or who is not a Democrat, who is or who is not a Republican. I'm with the senator on this, that if you if you run and win office as a, as a Democrat, you're a Democrat. And uh, trying to apply litmus tests to folks within some reason uh, is, I think, a fool's errand. 
Peter Kansas, as Jamie and Peter refuse to argue with each other, which we can work on over the course of the next few minutes. I'm happy to work on that, yeah. I am, I am struck by the fact that even if historically it hasn't been the way parties have had success, it seems to me that a few years back, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president, the Tea Party arose as a challenge to uh, classical, centrist, moderate Republicans, and I would say won that challenge. The Tea Party, from my vantage point, took over the GOP. And here we are a few few years later, the uh, GOP in its new, more conservative form has control of the House and Senate and mm -hmm. presidency. And carte blanche, if they can get out of their own way to do pretty much whatever they want policy-wise. So, Peter, I guess that's a long way of saying I'm hoping that you'll argue with Peter and Jamie since they won't do it with each other. <laughs> well, it's not so much of an argument. I, I was going to take my, my favorite um, long view. And let me begin by saying one reason why um, uh, Senator Eldridge's comments appeared to be, not appeared to be, were so newsworthy, and why um, former Senator Wolf's comments were so newsworthy is that you know, look, when I got in this business 40-plus years ago, um, Beacon Hill was not as buttoned up as it is today. Mm -hmm. right. um, the, the culture there was probably not as swashbuckling as I'd like <laughs> to remember, but it was a lot looser. It's, mm -hmm. It was a yep. lot looser than it was today, than it is today. But, but let me make a couple of points. One is, you know, in, in the, the, the story about... Um, Jamie's memo, which which I thought was a good idea, but um, I, I'm much more conservative a centrist than a lot of people may realize. But I do think that progressives in Massachusetts get short shrift, um, and I, I think that's because they're used to talking rather than organizing. To, to put it to put it <laughs> bluntly. Um, uh, Deval Patrick was a, a, a notable exception. But there was something Jim O'Sullivan wrote. He talked about the state, meaning Massachusetts, the state's left-leaning national reputation. Massachusetts is not as left-leaning as most people think. You know, you go back to the 1950s. Now, that is truly ancient history in this day and age. Joe McCarthy was a very popular figure, the, you know, the right-wing um, not red baiting. I mean, he was a scary guy. I mean, he, senator from Wisconsin, the, uh, boss, former boss of a, an eager young uh, RFK. Right. 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 Yep. Good. Mm -hmm. Good. Good. Man student. knows his history. Um, you know. Also, Massachusetts. You know, Deval Patrick, who I was just praising for his organizational abilities. I'll, I'll tell you, there's a school of thought, and we'll see. You know, mm -hmm. in in eighteen months from now, but. Patrick looks like an aberration to me. You know, you had Republican Welds, Republican Salucci, Republican Romney. Okay, Patrick, who is, in my lifetime, the, the, um, at least in Massachusetts, um, the only politician who was ever smoother and better than Governor Patrick was Governor Frank Sargent. Um, and he was also the most progressive governor, I'd say, in, you know, since Dukakis. And, and was largely elected by insurgent progressives. Yeah. He was an outsider. So, I mean, I think that speaks to the power of progressives if they do focus on organizing. Jamie, since you hopped in with that, let me get you to, um, to clarify. Mm -hmm. When you say Deval Patrick was the most progressive governor 
that, uh, that you can recall. The phrase or the term progressive gets used a lot. I think I have a pretty good sense of, of what it means and that all of us at the table here do. I'm guessing that applies to most of our listeners too, but on the off chance that someone might have a, a general sense of what you mean by progressive but not a fine-grained sense, what made Deval Patrick uh, the most progressive governor of Massachusetts in recent memory? Yeah, so at, at, at a time when uh, there was still a debate over gay marriage, he campaigned as being very you know, pro-gay marriage. He had a very strong policy on uh, wind power and Cape Wind and combating climate change, where Massachusetts really didn't have uh, a strong clean energy pot- portfolio at the time. Um, and he was also someone who uh, was very strongly against the death penalty, in large part because of his work before. Uh, it, it, both the Department of Justice and the, uh, I think it was the ACLU. So, so I, I think that there are clear determinants of, of being a progressive. And I think right now what's been interesting is the shift has been on inequality. You know, we live in uh, 46 out of 50 states. Has, Massachusetts is among the most unequal, the gap between the rich and poor. Um, but isn't everyone against that? I mean, I was at the Constitutional Convention the other day when, uh, and by the way, you, you played a big role in writing the Fair Share Amendment, right? I didn't, I didn't, didn't play a big okay. role. I did file an amendment we'll, on that. We'll but. excise that part. Um, <laughs> I, so, I, I guess I could claim that. But yeah, let, me, <laughs> let me take another crack at it. I was at the Constitutional Convention the other day when that proposal to tax people who earn more than a million bucks at an extra 4%, uh, which I think in large part is aimed at addressing income inequality, uh, the Republicans in the legislature weren't excited about it, but it seemed to me like most of the Democrats were. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, the vast majority were. I would note that there were Democrats who voted against it, who I think are self-described you know, conservative Democrats. But I think there's other uh, votes, if you will. You know, One of the things we did in the Senate was scale back the uh, film tax credit and sort of criticizing corporate tax breaks. That's an area where you know, not only is there clearly a difference between the House leadership, but just more broadly amongst Democrats, I think it's accurate to say that more moderate or conservative Democrats support that tax break and more progressives are more critical of it. So, I mean, there, there, are, there are distinctions. Peter, feel free to hop in. You, I think we're giving me a signal with your eyes maybe like you wanted to get in there. Maybe I missed Was that. I? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Can we pretend that you were? <laughs> sure, sure. No, you know, I think uh, going back to some, some things you, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, I'm a big fan of big tent parties. I think they work best in the American system, which is characterized by separation of powers and, and federalism. We have multiple uh, powers of uh, pockets of power uh, in the state. Um, and so the, the more that you, tra- you know, the way that, that the senator and you've just described the Constitutional Convention strikes me is just right. I mean, that's the way political parties uh, work best in the United States when you've got these larger parties that are really coalitions of different interests. And, you know, I'm also a fan of parties that mean something, and sometimes those things are intention, because we, we know the Democratic Party is right of, uh, I'm sorry, left of center, the Republicans are right. Um, how far you move to the edges, if you continue to move far to the edges, I think you end up in a really problematic situation, and that they end up not being good governing institutions. You know, let me throw a, a, an example or a case study in there. I mean, um, uh, as we record on, on on this day, there was a um, a lot of activity on Beacon Hill about the um, uh, criminal justice overhaul yep. bill, and um, the governor's bill, as it's known, um, is expected to pass. But 
the progressive wing of the party um, is, I think, upsets an understatement, is working very hard to get um, um, uh, mandatory minimum sentences. Yep, now, I'm part of that group. Yep. In, <laughs> but see, to me, he, he, here, here to me is an example of um, that dynamic in its purest form where um, the, 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 the speaker and it seems the Senate president, um, although it, it, uh, my bet is it's, it's more the speaker, um, is really doing nothing to make it easy to amend that bill. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to speak around it just in case. <laughs> Let's something... go right at it. I mean, we got Senator Eldridge no, but, here. So, you, you know, is this a good case study of, you know, the, it is. the frustration that progressives have? It is. So I was, I was at the hearing today, Peter, and I testified criticizing the governor's uh, bill. It's a very watered-down version of um, what was supposed to be a bipartisan effort on criminal justice reform, so it's even below uh, the recommendation that people expected. What are some of the provisions it doesn't have that you would have liked to see in it? Uh, the good time provision does not apply to nonviolent drug offenders, and that's a big push, is that if you're in prison on a drug sentence now, you should be able to accumulate good time, which I actually, I mean, it's interesting to have a progressive. I think it's a very common sense proposal, and I feel like sometimes progressives are proposing things that are actually common sense, but the other side, for a variety of reasons, is not, is not supporting. Um, but I, I also testified in support of repealing mandatory minimums, which, you know, the governor's bill certainly doesn't do that. And, you know, there was a, a really interesting back and forth between uh, Suffolk DA Dan Conley, uh, who, who supports the status quo as it is, and uh, Senator Cheng Diaz, who asked a lot of you know good questions of him, and she supports the repeal. Let, let me ask Peter a question to sort of follow up this. Most of the district attorneys in the state, and I, I don't know for sure, but most of them I know are opposed to mm-hmm. getting rid of mandatory minimums. Now, most of the district attorneys are also Democrats. So, you, you know, as someone who favors a, a big tent, how do we reconcile it also politics is about winning and it's about losing too right. and i recognize that but but you know using this as an example what's your take on that or do you have counsel or do you have observations i it, nothing more than parties are complex organizations and one of the differences between american political parties and and parties that you might find elsewhere in the world is that their party platforms are not binding so uh, the this, this senator is a Democrat in good standing who, who holds fast to his beliefs. Uh, District Attorney Conley is a Democrat in, hold, in good standing who holds fast to his. Uh, it's, it's a big, sometimes dysfunctional, uh, not always, family of, of folks who call themselves Democrats but may arrive at policy uh, recommendations or proposals that are very, very different. And uh, you can resort to, as many activists do, quite rightly said, well, what's the point of having a platform if leading Democrats don't subscribe to it? Well, uh, that's a very good question. <laughs> in, the American, in the American system, platforms are not binding. And the closest we come in Massachusetts is at the, the convention where they nominate um, or they, they allow candidates to move advance to the primary ballot. 
where you, you statewide candidates have to get 15% of the vote of the convention in order to get their name on. That's the closest we come to putting an imprimatur on uh, Democratic candidates uh, in Massachusetts. I, I would add, though, at the Mass Democratic Convention, there was an amendment by you know, basically progressives to, to make it binding, to require all Democratic elected officials to, to follow it. it. It didn't pass. Did you support that amendment? Um, I did not because I, I have said that there, there's, there's always going to be a few areas where there's disagreement, but I, I will say there's a lot of frustration amongst Democrats. And it's, it's important to remember these are the rank and file that are part of city and town committees. So it's not just sort of the quote-unquote radical activists, but just town committee members. They voted you know, for the most progressive platform in you know, arguably modern history. And I think there is frustration that Beacon Hill, both Senate and House, are not moving fast enough in a whole whole number of areas. How widespread is that frustration that you're talking about? And where is it most acute? What are the areas where people really want to see action from Democrats in the legislature and aren't getting it? I would say definitely, and you know, this is a, a little self-promoting, but on, on protecting immigrants, I, I have a bill, the Safe Communities Act, there's an incredible amount of organizing going on. Which would basically make us, uh, I don't know if you object to the use of the phrase sanctuary state, but uh, is that an okay way to describe right. it? Right, I mean, I call it a, a safe, you know, a safe state or a welcoming state. It, you know, some people don't like the word sanctuary. But it would, it would, you know, limit police from engaging in, you know, deportation practices, ban the sheriffs, who some, some of the conservative sheriffs are acting as immigration agents. And that's a bill, I will say, that, you know, as far as I can tell, was kind of tabled on the House side. So I think there's a lot of frustration when that happens. So, so I think there, there is this tension right now. And how much on. frustration is there in the legislature itself? I mean, you talked about rank-and-file Democrats around the state wishing that there was more aggressiveness on issues like immigration. But in your body, the Senate, which we all think of on the outside, I shouldn't speak for Peter Ubertasio. I'm speaking here for Peter Kazison myself. We all think of the Senate as the, the liberal counterpoint to the uh, House's more moderate or even occasionally conservative uh, Democrat-dominated body. Uh, how many of your fellow legislators are chafing at that dynamic that you just described? I think there is a lot of chafing, and quite honestly, I think there's a, a fair amount in the House. But to, sort of to Peter's point, Peter Kadz's point, is, is that the, the House and the Senate were a lot more you know, decentralized 40, 50 years ago. Not that I was there then, but that's what I've read. And now, you know, there's incredible pressure. You know, example today is the House reported out another marijuana bill. And, you know, every House member, you know, voted for the bill, including some of my good friends who I know have serious problems with the bill, because to vote against a House bill is, is, is against the leadership. Because you piss off the Speaker and then you might get in trouble, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, let me, this is related, but let me address this to Peter, although it's sort of a bank shot. I'm, I'm curious to, like, give you the first, but I, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I have a theory that Massachusetts cannot afford to be any more progressive. Now, there are many things like gay marriage, for example, when uh, Deval Patrick was governor, where there really is no cost in terms of dollars and cents. But the Massachusetts budget, I mean, we're not broke, but we're, we're spending right at the limit. I mean, it, it looks like we're going to close the year, and you would have better information than, than mm -hmm. I would, Jamie, but we're going to, you, you know, be close out a, a 
two billion short or something. I mean, there's not a lot of extra money. And because money flows through the House, um, I think, I, I wonder if, if um, uh, Speaker DeLeo's naturally, you know, if his, his centric <coughs> political instincts are bolstered to be more conservative by fiscal means. I just don't see how Massachusetts can afford to be much more progressive in a meaningful way. Am I crazy? Well, uh, I don't think you're crazy, Peter. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't. I, I think there are a variety of ways to define progressivism. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it always requires uh, greater amounts of expenditures in order to be progressive. So, for you know, example. Um, uh, taking the lead on transgender rights is a very progressive thing to do that is not doesn't have budgetary implications you know uh, whether you agree or disagree with the senator's view on you know safe communities or or, or a welcoming state uh, that that isn't uh, a, an increase in a, in a budgetary line item and so you know i think to the extent that some progressives in the house and senate are are frustrated with the speaker or other of their members, it's not only because of budgetary or you know, tax policy. No, no, but 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 in in let me focus on what's a pinprick in terms of the immigration debate, the 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 fear of local communities of losing, you know, in effect, money for their police forces. Sure. Um, Although it, that's not, there's really no likelihood of that. But yeah, notice yep. I said fear. <laughs> yep. I, I yep. mean. Um, mm-hmm. um, but no, that's a good thing. But, but I mean, I, I guess what I would say is that you know, Massachusetts. If we don't get more progressive, where are people going to live? You know, from affordable housing. Um, you know, the forty-two percent of the state budget is dedicated to healthcare costs. So, where is the push for for single-payer healthcare, uh, which was you know endorsed at the party platform? So, I, I actually feel you know to, to your earlier point, Peter Kadzis, is that I don't think Massachusetts. Is that progressive, you know, from from income inequality, uh, from a uh, you know funding for uh, environmental protection? You know, there was that Globe story about half the prisoners at MCA Norfolk are eating, drinking black and brown water. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that haven't gone funded for 20, 30 years. So I think there needs to be more investment. I wanted to go back, uh, Adam, to one thing that uh, you and the senator discussed about the the, the making the party platform binding um that's it's it that is a radical now you think it's a good idea or a bad idea that's an open debate but um party platforms in the united states have never been binding um and i'm not sure how you could make them binding legally since most democratic office holders in the state are elected in their constituencies so they don't have to attend they whether they should or not as good democrats is, is a matter of point of view but they don't have to attend the convention. They don't have to vote on the platform. They don't have to seek the approval of, of the party organization uh, in order to, to run as a Democrat. The only folks who have to gain the support of, of the party organization are those who choose to run statewide. And again, that's a, a rather low threshold. So making that binding on all Democrats or Republicans... Um, there's just so few Republicans. I sometimes forget that uh, they, 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 they live <laughs> under exist. the same rules. Um, <laughs> is would be a, a very significant shift. Jamie Eldridge, was that discussed uh, as that amendment was debated at the convention? How do we actually enforce this thing if we pass it? 
Well, in typical fashion, there was really no debate on it. Uh, it was the end of the day. Uh, people were looking to get home, I think. But, um, but I think that, you know, to, to respond to, to Peter Urbitasio's comment is um, that I think that it's important to realize, and this is where I, I, I'm frustrated, the difference between Democratic Party and Republican Party sort of establishment is that the Republican Party seems to pay close attention to its activists, to its base. You know, no matter whether you agree with them or not, they pay close attention, they sort of implement the base. The Democratic Party, I, I do find that sometimes some of my colleagues kind of denigrate the activists and say they're, they're crazy and, you know, they're, they're unreasonable. And, you know, maybe some of them are, but I'm just surprised that there's not more of a, of a responsiveness to the base, whether it's, you know, protecting immigrants or single payer or, you know, repealing corporate tax breaks. No, I mean, um, it's interesting because the Baker administration, which is not in sympathy with the, the hardcore Republican base, nevertheless is, goes out of its way not to alienate mm -hmm. their base. And um, progressive Democrats in general have a a lot of fun trying to, you know, make it out. I think it's crazy that, you know, Charlie Baker is a Trump in disguise. But nevertheless, Trump, Trump um, B Baker pays quiet homage to his base mm -hmm. in yeah. a way that the Democrats in this state don't. Do you think, mm -hmm. uh, Jamie Eldridge, that that's because the Democrats, even when you occasionally have to work with a Republican governor, I shouldn't say occasionally, it's the norm rather than the, the exception, but... Is it because Democrats call the shots, by and large? You're the entire congressional delegation. You dominate both chambers in the state house, and therefore there just isn't a need to heed the base in the way that there might be if elections were closer and more seats were contested? Or is that not a decent explanation? I think that's possible. I honestly think the real factor, which is very troubling, and obviously there's discussion of this at national level, is the influence of, of corporate money in the Democratic Party. Um, certainly, there are a lot of people that feel that, and this isn't just about the last presidential election, but it's about you know previous presidential elections, is that you know corporate interests are, are, are have too much of an influence on most Democratic elected officials, and when you see you know some of the battles going on now in the legislature, uh, you know the House took up the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, only to reveal that there was one word that effectively gutted the enforcement of protecting pregnant workers. And I would say that came from the business lobby. So, you know, how did that happen and why did that happen? I think it has to do with the corporate lobby, corporate money, and, you know, where people raise their money from. Uh, Jamie, you in this email that we talked about at the outset that you sent mm -hmm. last August, and I'm still wondering, I, I got to defer to you because you were the author of the email, but <laughs> some of the language was pretty sharp. I mean, you did talk about... Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives taking, I can't remember your exact phrase, but taking control of the party. You even raised mm -hmm. the prospect of a, a third party, right? Now, this, of course, was back when it still looked, if memory serves, or what, was it right after uh, Bernie Sanders had, had uh, lost the Democratic presidential nomination to Hillary Clinton? Do you remember? Yes, it was, it was after, and there, it was a lot of, you know, energy focused in Massachusetts at the state level. So. Okay, so, so you were talking about these questions with whatever degree of sharpness right after that had happened. Um, Dan Wolf was talking about the possibility of someone primarying Bob DeLeo heading into the state party convention where there was going to be a big back and forth over the platform. Mm -hmm. How is this tension between 
moderate conservative Democrats on the one hand and progressive or liberal Dems on the other. How's it going to play out in the governor's race? That's a great question. I, you know, I know each of the candidates fairly well. I think they're all clearly, you know, trying to portray themselves or are, you know, progressive Democrats um, to get, you know, that activist support. Um, so, you know, where do they stand on these issues that are being brought up more and more, you know, single payer, uh, sanctuary state, um, you know, uh, any, uh, combating inequality. So I, I think it will, will come up, and I don't think anyone has really decided who is the progressive yet. Uh, Peter Ubertasio, what's the right tack for Democrats to take here? Because as, as Jamie rattled off some of the issues that people might be paying attention to when it comes to indexing progressivity as the right. governor's race unfolds, you've got a very popular incumbent or incumbent with good poll numbers in Charlie Baker. And obviously a countervailing case could be made that what you want in a Democrat is someone who might be able to peel centrists away mm-hmm. from Governor Baker as he seeks re-election. How do you think that this dynamic is going to play out in the governor's race? I, it is a great question, and um, you know, I think I think tactically, I I am not a strategist, um, but if, if you're gonna if you're gonna raise the issue of primarying the the speaker, you, you'd better have a primary challenger ready to go, or else it's an empty threat. And if that person isn't ready to go and going to be well funded and track support, uh, then you risk, I think, damaging your own cause. Having said that, you know, I, I don't think the danger is in uh, the dynamic in the Democratic side of the governor's race. You've got at the moment three, you know, uh, well-known within Democratic Party circles, uh, folks who are going to try to carry the progressive banner. If there are other candidates, my guess is only that they would be even more well-known folks who are committed to the progressive cause. I think that where these things kind of play out more significantly is in governing. And should a Democrat win in the way that Deval Patrick did, and you've got unified party control that often suggests unified party control, Democrats can do whatever they want. The reality is much more complex, not only because mm-hmm. the party is more diverse than we sometimes like to think, um, but the, the way in which our governing structures are, are laid out, it makes it very difficult. And so oftentimes the, there's greater frustration among Democrats when there's a Democrat in in charge because they, particularly among folks who really want to view this as an opportunity to ram through, I don't mean that negatively, um, a, a policy agenda or a platform, it's still a very difficult thing to do. Well, I, I think a key issue here um, is charisma. And um, I, I, let's start again there, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> A key issue here is charisma, and Deval Patrick was able to break the hold on the Republicans, uh, the, 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 the hammerlock that the Republicans held on the governor's in part because he was a charismatic figure. Mm-hmm. You also had just Republican fatigue, and also coming after Romney, who was so two-faced about the way yeah, he was really uh, searching for a national platform. Cattle rancher at a veg- uh, vegetarian convention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, but, but, but Patrick had charisma. I'm not sure, you know, with all due respect to the, 
the, the, the gentlemen in the race so far that any of them have that sort of charisma. And, you, you know, I don't think any of them are as tall as Charlie Baker. And, and Charlie, <laughs> in, in his own way, is a charismatic guy. I mean, our listeners are probably getting sick of me saying this, but I will say it again, that just as Tom Menino was the urban mechanic, I think Charlie Baker is, you know, the town manager, the state manager of Massachusetts. And he's crafted for himself, uh, you know, a, a sort of potent image, if I'm right, in playing him as that. And I think a lot of the challenge to, uh, to unseat Baker is going to be one of, you know, coming up with a good narrative, a good story, you know, a good personality. Um, My sense, and Jamie can tell me if I'm right about this, is that that narrative is going to be, hey, you know that persona of Charlie Baker as mm-hmm. the super competent state manager? Well, guess what? It's not borne out in reality. It's but a false s- image. Yeah, absolutely. What you're talking about the environment, whether you're talking about uh, the bond rating going down for the first time in, in 30, re- 30 years for the state, uh, whether you talk about you know some of the scandals and tragedies that are happening in our prison system, he, he's not a good manager, but he has crafted a, an image as, as the technocrat. Just one, one point I, I'd like to, I was hoping this would come up, but I, I'll tell you, back in, I think it was December, when when the state revenues weren't matching projections, um, I'm not saying you personally, perhaps you did, but everyone, the Democrats in the legislature, oh, Baker's overreacting. Looks like Governor Baker was not overreacting. That was a key moment, and I thought that the Democrats were going to lose that key moment um, because I I think the Democrats at the Statehouse, for a variety of reasons, have their head in their sand about spending. And this goes back to my point. Present company accepted, of course. But progressives did support increasing taxation, just didn't have the votes. Didn't have the but But... On Massachusetts, this goes back to my point that maybe too flip, as, as hmm. Peter was too polite to say so, but <laughs> I'm not sure Massachusetts has enough money to be progressive. That as long as... We're one of the richest states in the country, Peter. Come but, on. <laughs> but unless unless the legislature votes to change the tax structure, mm-hmm. we don't yeah. have the... Everyone else has the money. The state mm-hmm. doesn't, and the the so-called millionaires tax will more or less make up the two billion dollar deficit we're facing now. So it's a wash until the Republicans in Congress cut, you know, literally billions of dollars coming to Massachusetts. So we, oh, we need to do more. <laughs> I I wasn't even going there, but that is a good point. So I gotta end with a. Uh, we were getting so substantive there for a second. It was like, <laughs> Sorry, Adam, I won't do it again. <laughs> Apology accepted. I, I have to ask before we wrap up, and I want to ask uh, Jamie first, and then I'll ask uh, Peter Ubertesio to win, but uh, Jamie Eldridge, you have your finger on the pulse of the Democratic Party in this state, what the base wants. Is the base uh, eager for another entrant or multiple entrants in the governor's race, and if so, are they going to get it? Absolutely. I think we would love to see more Healy run. I think that's highly unlikely. Um, obviously, yeah. there's some talk that Dan Wolf, you know, might might run. Um, I'm curious to see who else. But, yeah, I think there's a lot of people still holding back. Yep. You were mentioned at one point, right, as a possible 
candidate? I don't think I was. No, no I'm, I'm not, a, not a candidate. Well, so, you just but. were. All right. Yeah, <laughs> nice I, nice I good try, really Adam. Good. I like that. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> well, I didn't want to miss something huge. Maybe, maybe I just made that up because I do that sometimes. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, Peter Ubertasio. I want to blame Mike Dean, our state house oh. reporter, but uh, you know, I could also be making that up. So, Peter Ubertasio, do you think uh, that Dan Wolf or some other Democrat will hop in the field and maybe try to channel some of these energies that we've been talking about? You know, it, what's striking to me is that uh, a lot of Democrats have been proceeding as if we're heading into another 1994 where, where Bill Weld was untouchable and, and won an enormous re-election. I can't help but wonder if it's more like 1974 and some folks are holding back a little bit, waiting to see how the national trends might impact the state, how some of the recent issues that the senator and Peter both raised might impact Charlie Baker. We know that if Maura Healy gets into this race, that she, you know, it will still be a fight, but I, I, I suspect that she would do really well in the nomination process mm-hmm. and really bring the fight to Charlie Baker. Um, so, I, you know, I would not be surprised if over the next few months, if Baker's poll numbers start to come down and people really start to feel like there's a chance here that someone like Moore Healy might take it. it well, oh, go ahead, Peter. It, well, just on that point, at, at, at the dreaded St. Patrick's Day breakfast, <laughs> I came away with the feeling, um, very real, you know, we talked about this uh, e- even on the air, that um, if Maura Healy threw her hat in the ring, that the at least all the Democrats at that um, breakfast yeah. would jump through hoops. And I suspect the one Republican I saw there, Governor Baker, might not have been too happy. Well, let me tell you, at the state Democratic Party convention that mm-hmm. happened a few weeks back, she had the most signs of mm-hmm. any politician who was there. And I was struck by the fact that in her speech... She managed to, I don't think, mention Charlie Baker's name once while also unveiling what sounded like it could become, if necessary, a stump speech that she could use if she decided to run for governor. And timing is so important. Um, Mm -hmm. She didn't have forever to decide because if if Mm -hmm. Baker is vulnerable, and I'm not quite sure he is, if he turns out that he is and it's it's a Seti Warren and Seti Warren wins, Moore Hilly will have lost her chance to run for governor for a while. And so they you need to weigh that uh, before, uh, you know, making a definitive conclusion about whether you're in or not. Because uh, if she's in and she loses, she will have lost her, her perch, and uh, that can be very difficult to come back from. So uh, having said that, there's time. There's time. How much time is there? Uh, you know, you, you have to. Maura Healy is unlike most other public officials or politicians. When she gets in, she will raise the money she needs. And you know, in Massachusetts, we have this thing where you raise within a calendar year, so you don't want to miss the calendar year. But if she mm-hmm. decided in in the fall to get in, she will she will clear the field in terms of money. I have no doubt. And I, I think that would that would still be plenty of time for her because she's so well known among the folks who caucus in the winter and in through the spring and then at the convention, that I think she's got probably more time than some of the others. All right, and Jamie, i got to ask you on the way out, any <laughs> sense of what Dan Wolf might be thinking right now? I remember asking him way back at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia if he was thinking about it, and he kind of said he, he was, and that was as far as he, he'd gone. You guys are close. Um, do you think mm-hmm. he might hop in? I, I don't know. I, I've been... You know, I certainly talked to him about it. He's, he is a good friend. I still think he's thinking about it, but, but yeah, I, don't, I really don't know. All right. 
That is going to do it for this episode of the Scrum. Senator Jamie Eldridge and Peter Ubertasio, newly minted dean at Stonehill <laughs> College, thank you both for coming here to the BPL to talk with us. Sure. Thanks Peter Kadzis, as always, the pleasure was mine and mine alone. And I'll <laughs> and see you ours, tomorrow. And ours. And sit across finally, from each other. <laughs> thanks to everyone who's listening to this. We appreciate you taking the time to do so. You can find back episodes of The Scrum online at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. You can also find us at the various places that you get your podcasts, including iTunes, where you really ought to subscribe if you haven't already. We'd also love it if you left a review while you're there, especially if it's a good one, but feel free to give constructive criticism as well. As always, you can email us with ideas, comments, or complaints at scrum at wgbh.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam, and Peter is at Kadzis. Our producer is Jason Tereski. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm-hmm.